All right. Hey, let's get into God's Word. Would you like to do that? Yeah, me too. This is going to be a lot of fun. We are starting a new series called Epic, and uh, this summer we're going to go through different stories of the Bible, and so uh, big things. Now, we like to start a story at the beginning because that makes it most fun, and so our memory verse comes from, well, the very beginning. This is the very first verse in the Bible, and it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if we don't know that, what's a good idea? it's time to know it now. So say it along with me. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Now, this isn't a hard one, so we'll go fast. We'll say it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. That's so profound. We'll talk about it in here a minute, but let's test ourselves because I know it's hard, but you're quick this morning. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Oh, you sound so good. Let's just try it without anything on there. I bet we can get it. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Isn't that amazing? What a great start to the greatest story ever. Ah, oh, just amazing. Well, if, uh, if you have a Bible, you want to be getting it out, and we're going to be in Genesis today, and we're going to talk about the story that begins all stories. The story at the very beginning, the story of Adam and Eve and creation, is a story that tells us a lot about ourselves, who we are. It tells us uh, why the world is the way that it is. If you ever had questions as to why is it that bad things happen to all people? You ever wondered that? Well, this kind of helps us know that. Or why are people selfish sometimes? You ever wondered this? Or There's a lot of qu- questions that this answers and why we are the way we are and why the world is the way that it is. So if you have your Bible, do you want to turn to Genesis 1? And that's going to be found on page 1. It's like the easiest place to find it. And, uh, and let me tell you a little about uh, Genesis, the book. Um, it was written by Moses. And so it was written about 2,000 years before Christ. It's about 4,000 years ago. And uh, it was written at a time when uh, Moses led the people out of captivity. And so here is a slave people who were promised people, but there was no Bible before this. And so... Uh, they may have heard stories about Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob came Israel and all of that as to where their heritage was. But you know what? When you're a slave for several hundred years, generations, it's kind of hard to believe you may be a chosen people. And God takes Moses up to this mountain and begins to speak to him. And, and then he begins meeting with him in this tent of meetings and, and reveals to him and eventually helps Moses pen the first five books of Scripture. Now, was Moses present at this event? No, he wasn't there at creation. He wasn't born yet for another couple thousand years. But God was there. And God gives him this book of of Genesis, which begins with creation, and it shows all the way down how the people of Israel became the chosen people. And everything that God had done up to that point to lead to, to them and to, so they could see their place in God's big plan. It's a phenomenal story of beginnings that to show us that God is bringing a Savior. And can you imagine how awesome it was for the people in Moses' time to see that, that God had something for them. They felt small. They felt insignificant. They felt uh, uh, maybe that uh, they felt like slaves. 
and to see know that God had called them to something much bigger and they were part of a story much bigger than their own. Well, that same scripture is for you and me and that's what we're going to be beginning with and it's so important for us to start there at the very beginning. Now you'll notice as you open up Genesis that there are going to be two different stories of how Adam and Eve came about. There is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, don't let that throw you. The first Genesis 1 is the big picture. It's kind of giving the overall picture of how creation turned about. How did we get to everything? Genesis 2 focuses in, zooms in more onto the story in particular of how Adam and Eve themselves came into existence. So uh, Genesis 1 is the big picture. Genesis 2 gives us a little more detail, and that's how it's divided. And then we get to Genesis 3, and that's when the trouble starts. So let's get into it this morning. Um, And so uh, Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning... And then we can't go too quick over that because it lets us know something very interesting about our world. Is it had a beginning? And and we would say, well, of course it has a beginning. Everything has a beginning. But it's important for us to see this is not eternal. Before there was the beginning, there was God, which makes God something bigger than we can comprehend because God doesn't have a beginning. He was there in the beginning. So before anything there was, he was. And so how can something exist that doesn't have a beginning? I don't know. It blows our brains up, which is fantastic. It lets us know that God is not somebody we would invent. Right? We can't wrap our minds around him. But he was there. And it says in the beginning, it was the beginning of time and space. And then it says we have that first day. It begins in verse 2, the very first command of Scripture that God says, Let there be light. And his very first act after that is to separate light from darkness, which is a fascinating concept. It means that light could exist without its properties, and then God gave them their properties. And he separates light from darkness, and we shouldn't get by that too, too quickly and understand that there was a, the very last act of, of this creation is when God will also separate light and darkness again, uh, the children of light from, from, from a world of darkness. And that's going to be the very end. And then there's the judgment. And then there's eternity, which is going to be awesome. So he separates light from darkness. And we see that as a theme then throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus was even called the light of the world. God then started a binary system. And we see God really works a lot in this way. that He created day and night. Before there was even a sun or anything like that, he creates time. And so we know that time is a function, obviously, of this universe and everything, but he creates time. And he creates a way of marking it. And it says, and there is evening and morning, and that's the first day. Day two, he does something fascinating. It shows his power. It says, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And in Genesis 1.8, he said, he called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning and the second day. And we understand that we set up telescopes, right, to look out into the world, to look for those Goldilocks planets, you know, the ones that are not too awful and whatever, and they can just be just right for life. And we're so excited when we begin to find water on something, but you know what you need more than just water is you need atmosphere. And God created this amazing earth, uh, what has this capacity to, to, for life to exist, and the, that's what he does. And he creates the sky, and on day three... Then he does something really fun. He says, and God said, uh, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And so God created land. 
because God is a God of great diversity, isn't he? We could be fish people if he hadn't done this. So I'm glad for that. And then God said, let all the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants. Don't miss that. Seed-bearing plants, right? And trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. God didn't create the seeds for the plants on day three. He created the plants that had seeds. Now, if you find a plant and it already has fruit, like you find a fruit tree and it's already got fruit, how old do you think that fruit tree is? At least two years old. I planted fruit trees before and it was like five or six years before I ever got anything out of those things. On day three, there was a crop. You know what that's called when God created things that looked older than they really were? Apparent age. And it's an important concept for us to understand in creation. If God just created the seeds, everything would have starved to death by the time it was time to eat. He created the environment, he created an atmosphere, and then he created plants that were already fully aged. And then, uh, he had to do that. If he didn't do this, creation would have failed right at the very beginning. So God created an image, uh, in creation we see that God is creating things already fully functioning according to their intention or their design, which means that the universe is going to look and the world looked older than it actually was when it was created. Important concept. Now, on day four, after he creates the plants, what do plants need? Water. They got that. And then they also need sunshine. Well, God's not dumb. And so on day four, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of sky to separate day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and the days and the years. And let there be lights in the vault of sky to give light onto the earth. And it was so. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, something interesting, he doesn't just create the sun to give us light during the day and the moon for light at night, but he also says something important about that. He says, so that they can separate the day and the night to mark time, but also this, to serve as signs of sacred times, of days and of years. And do you know what the most accurate timepiece in the entire universe is? The universe which I think is awesome. God created the biggest, most awesome clock. That's the clock that we use to test time. That's how we haven't even as humans been able to invent something as accurate as the stars. And so even our best clocks will be off just a little bit over a period of time, but the universe doesn't ever lie. In fact, if you took a picture of tonight's sky and then you waited several hundred years, or so maybe several thousand years, and some archaeologist ends up finding it and finds that picture, and they know where it was taken, they can tell you the exact date it was taken and time. It's fascinating. Uh, and God made it on, on that uh, wonderful day four. Now, it's important for us to realize this. How old were the stars on day four? They were a day old but could we see them? Yeah, that was their intention, right? For us to see them. A clock does us no good if we can't see it. Now, how far are stars away from the earth? Yeah, billions of light years away, right? Just like a tree that may look a couple years old on the day it was created, the stars could look billions of years old because their intention was we would see the light. And so God created the stars like that, which shows us something awesome about God. He is really powerful, right? And he builds nature, but he builds nature in such a way that he, as he's building nature itself, he's setting things up outside of, of natural law, right? So he's able to, to 
make time and space, but he doesn't have to make time and space through time and space, which boggles our minds. And yet he did. And so they were able to see the sun, the moon, the stars on day four, but there wasn't a whole, plants can't really appreciate that. So on day five, he said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and across the vault of sky. And so God made birds and fish. And so the land began to, to be populated. Now, interestingly enough, uh, plants uh, were already there. God provided in advance for things that were living. Right? How cool is that? And plants really do need animals. We kind of have this awesome ecosystem that he built together. We all need each other. But the birds and the... Can you imagine the birds and the fish if they showed up and there was no plants, nothing to eat? They were like, this is the lousiest party ever. Right? But from, day, from their first day, God had already provided everything that they need. And they were happy. Now was, God said, it's good. And then on day six... God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals according to their kind, and it was so. And so, did God said, let there be animals? No, he said, let the land produce living creatures, which I think is interesting. In my mind, I can just see like little animals like growing up out of the ground. I don't know how that happened. But it's an interesting concept that we find in this is that animals, we were, all the animals are indelibly made part of this earth can't be separated from this creation right that's so we think no dust to dust and things like this but we cannot separate the the creatures from the creation itself and so god creates these animals and and they go all over the earth and it's pretty fantastic god says good and then in verse 26 god said let us and that's an interesting thing to say us why would the one and only God, the one who reveals himself to, to Moses saying, I, there's only one God, I am that I am, right? That Let no other, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, you know, very much don't uh, worship any other gods but me, right? Why would that God say, let us do this? Why is God talking to himself? Well, it's the very beginning of hints that we begin finding that there is a trinity, that there is, God is not only so different in his nature, not only that he doesn't have a beginning, but he's also plural and singular at the same time. That's not a contradiction. It's just too big for our brains to figure out. And now as we've gone throughout time and history, we see the concept of a trinity. There is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And we know from John, uh, the Gospel of John that Jesus, God the Son, was there at creation. And, and he was the active agent. God the Father willed it. God the Son made it so. And God the Holy Spirit, of course, empowers it. Amazing. God said, let us make mankind in our own image. God already had relationship And in our likeness, he says, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. And you can see already God's plan that they, God has an idea that he wants humans to be plural as well. Let them do it. And he wants us to rule over the livestock and the wild animals and all the creatures that move on on the ground. So God said, created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, plural. Male and female, he created them. Both equally in the image of God. And then it said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves along the ground. That's a pretty great day. Now, were Adam and Eve babies when this happened? Chances not. Probably adults. God gave them adult work to do. 
And so on day six, they would have looked probably, who knows, like teenagers or young adults. Maybe they looked like they're in their 40s. I have no idea, but they certainly didn't look like a zygote. They didn't look like one day old. And yet there they were, fully functioning, doing exactly what God called them to do. And then on day seven, God created something else that was fully functioning and absolutely wonderful. He created the weekend. Let us give praise to God for that. And it says, Then the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And so God shows that there's a rhythm to life. And he sets a pattern for us to see that this world runs in time. And there's a healthy balance to things where he is made. And God sets a great example. And he sets this world and makes it perfect. And so then we get into chapter 2 and, and we get down to more the, the story of, of our ancestors. How about humanity? It says he made us in his image, male and female. Well, how did that really work? And I'm sure God knew that we would have questions. So he starts out and he shows us. And it says that the first thing, uh, it's a series of God giving people things. And the first thing he gives us is life. He gives Adam life. And it says on verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So he takes us from creation itself. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And notice this, that we as humans are a beautiful amalgam of both the creation and the creator. We are both physical and spirit. And that's from our very nature. We can never say that I'm just a spiritual being having a fleshly experience or I'm a fleshly being having a spiritual experience. I am both. The whole person, we cannot separate from this world nor can we separate ourselves from our spirit. We have both and it's an amazing thing and uh, unique in that way. And so God gives people life and then he gives people purpose. He gives Adam purpose. In Genesis 2, 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Now think how important that is, how kind that is. Have you ever met a person that doesn't have purpose in life? Absolutely pathetic. I, um, I've, and it's not just you know, to look down, I mean just to feel like, to wake up in the morning and just feel like there is no purpose. No reason, no direction, no goal. That is a horrible way to exist and God knew our need for purpose. And so right at the very beginning, he gives us life and the very first thing he does is, I have important work for you to do. And he's not reneged on that, by the way. God has important purpose for each of us. He fulfills all of our needs. And then, with that purpose, God then gives guidance because don't we need that? Isn't it nice he didn't just say, hey, go figure it out? He said, the Lord commanded him, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of that one, you're certainly going to die. Our God is a loving God, and he wants what's best. He's like a good parent. So I think one of the reasons why we get to call him God the Father. And he wants to give us guidance and direction, and he gave us the opportunity to learn. And he shows us the things that could be harmful lovingly. And he does. And then, after he's given us life and purpose and guidance, he then gives Adam a partner, gives him Eve. Now, in verse 18 it says, The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I don't know how long Adam was out there alone 
you know, maybe it was a day. Maybe it was like a year. I have no idea. But God allowed Adam to discover something, that he was insufficient by himself. He needed companionship. And remember, it was God's design from the very beginning to make people plural, right? And you can't do that if you just have one man. So God already had an intention that he was going to make uh, the woman, but he needed Adam to discover this. And so he does, and so God says to the man, go check out all the livestock, see if there's any animal that would make a good partner. And Adam looks at all the animals and is like, nope. I mean, I like my dog, but not that much. And so he says, all right, no suitable helper was found. And so God gives Adam a gift. And isn't it cool how God works like that? Sometimes if God just gave us everything that we actually needed without us knowing we needed it, wouldn't we reject those things? How loving God is sometimes to let us see what we need so that way we can fully rejoice uh, when, when we find it. And so in verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made the woman from the rib that he had taken from the man and brought it to the man. There you go. So there you go. The Garden of Eden was the first rib takeout joint. But <laughs> I know, that's so bad. But I had to throw it in. <laughs> How fascinating, though. He didn't, he didn't make the woman out of new, new earth. He didn't make her different. He made her the same, yet different. What a cool thing is that. And you know this too, that God didn't have to breathe new life into Eve. There was already life there. That humans, we are tied together from this very first couple, from the very first act of creation. You and I have roots in that very first breath. How cool is this? And he makes them, though separate, he makes them one kind of sounds a little bit like kind of maybe God in his image. He is three and one. And God says uh, this was a very good thing. And, and uh, Adam agrees. Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Read that. She's just like me. She is me. There's an equality that was recognized, a respect that was there. And he says she'll be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Of course, not ever to forget this whole idea of this war of the sexes was never from God. There was something amazing that God, when he made us, he made us of the same flesh, of the same breath. And then after he's given them companionship, which what a great joy is that, Adam and Eve are given family and acceptance. In Genesis uh, verse 24 and 25, it says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife. And they become one flesh. See, Adam and his wife, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Isn't it amazing to have that one person in your life that's fully accepted by? There's nothing that you, you have any separation from to have that kind of companionship. That was built into our very nature from the very creation and God fulfills it. Just like he gave the, the fish and the birds and everything, all, everything they needed before they were even created, God is already designed to have, he knows our needs. And he fulfills them because he is so thoughtful and loving in how he creates. And an amazing thing, it says everything was very good, but then, of course, people do our thing, and then it was not so good. And that's where we get to chapter 3. This is where the trouble begins. 
And so we see in chapter 3, an enemy emerges. Verse 1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? You know, this is the enemy's tactic, and it's worked ever since the beginning. He'll overstate God's restrictions, knowing that we know it's an overstatement. And so what do we do as people? We're like, when something's overstated, they're like, didn't God say you can't eat anything? And then what does Eve do? Just like any person, we would say, oh, he didn't say that, right? Because we want to be righteous and we want to set something right. And so we're going, they overstated, so we often overstate, don't we? And that's when we fall into the trap. And so Eve, sticking up for God, says, after Satan makes this ridiculous statement, she says, "Uh uh-uh. He didn't say that we can't eat from any tree. He just said that we're not supposed to eat from this one tree. In fact, this is where she gets off. She says, in fact, we're not even supposed to touch it or we'll die. Right? To just let the devil know this is a bad tree and God wouldn't ever want us to even touch it. That's how bad it is because that's how much he loves us as he made sure that we wouldn't touch it. Right? But she overstates God. Did God say you can't touch the tree? No. He just said don't eat from it. And what seemed innocent enough fell into the animal's, enemy's trap. And uh, so then the enemy then counters. He says, you're not going to die if you touch it. You're going to die if you eat from this. Come on, that's ridiculous. And he puts her to the test. And he says, you know what, though? If you touch it. See, God's holding out on you. If you go and you eat that fruit, God knows you're going to become like him. You're going to be God's. And then we have temptation that's on and so, Adam and Eve, I'm sure that they investigated it. You know, kind of walk up kind of close to the tree. Kind of getting close. I don't want don't to get too close. Maybe I touch it and then maybe kind of brush it maybe just a little bit. Nope, didn't die. That's not too bad. And it says Eve saw then maybe that the fruit looked good and was desirable for gaining knowledge. And eventually you kind of take the fruit down and look at it. And I'm not dead yet, so hey, this is all right. And so maybe God is lying to me. Maybe God really is holding out. This does look pretty delicious. And so as she do, she eats it and she gives some to Adam who was with her, who obviously wasn't saying anything about it. It says scripture that she was actually fully, uh, she was fully duped. She really believed that, that God was holding out. This was actually going to help turn them to God. So it doesn't say the same thing about Adam. It says Adam, you know, he just was following his wife. He just took some of it too which shows the incredible power women really do have influence over men. Right? And so they give in to temptation and they eat the fruit and guess what? They don't die instantly, but something does happen. The poison of that tree starts working. It says that uh, they ate the fruit in verse 6 and then they saw it was good and then it says uh, their eyes were opened and they recognized that they were naked. Now, was it sinful for them to be naked? No. God made them naked, but God wouldn't do that if it was bad. In fact, they were walking around naked in the garden all the time. They were perfectly happy and content. God's ethical system, they were fine with. Because until they ate the fruit of the tree, it was impossible for them to think anything other. When God said it was so, it was right, they would agree it was so. Their moral compasses were locked onto God's standard. But as soon as they ate from that fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, they did become like God and the ability to create their own ethical system. And the very first sign of that is when they looked at themselves, all of a sudden they said being naked is bad. It's sinful. And they felt shame. And so they hid. 
something that was not bad according to what God said. They said was bad. They felt it was bad and so they took action. And God comes after them with love and he tries to, he makes them reveal themselves and they says, why did you hide? And they said, because we were naked and felt ashamed and God said, who told you you were naked? Really, what he's asking is, who told you it's wrong to be naked? Did you eat from that tree? Of course he knew they did. And that's when the blame game begins because that's what we do as people, right? And so we have uh, Adam begins. He says, uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, I, I ate from that, but it was this woman that you put here with me. Like he was so upset when she was made. It was this woman did this. And, and God says to Eve, hey, what is this you have done? And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, well, it was the serpent tricked me. And then God addresses the serpent. But before he addresses it with the curse, he offers judgment. He offers a promise. And this is a theme that we see all the way through Scripture. Before God brings judgment, God brings a promise. He shows his way of, of faithfulness. Think about Noah, right? Before the earth was flooded, before God even told Noah there was going to be a flood, what does he say? Build an ark. I want you to build an ark. Noah's thinking, why, wow, that's a crazy idea. Why? God says, because there's going to be a flood. Oh, okay, now it makes sense. He provides the way of salvation, and then he provides the judgment. And God offers Adam and Eve a gracious promise of salvation. Oh, they're going to die, Yes, but there was also going to be life. And so he tells the serpent, he says, you know what, serpent, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be crawling on the ground and eat dust. And I think it's interesting that snakes have little brackets in their sockets for arms and their, and their skeletons, but no legs. But anyway, uh, he crawls along the ground because that's a way of humbling. And he also says you're going to be hated. There's going to be enmity between you and humans, which is a sign of hope for the people right, that we're not just going to die here because you have to be alive to hate something. And then he says, this is where the promise comes in. He says, and you will be crushed. You're going to be destroyed. In fact, uh, there's going to become a human that's going to come here and he's going to completely destroy you. You're going to bruise his, his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So he tells Satan, you're going to be humbled, you're going to be hated, and you're going to be destroyed. And throughout the scriptures, we see that's exactly what God has done. We have our first messianic promise of the one who's going to come and to crush the devil, fulfilled in Christ. After God deals with the devil, he talks to the woman. He says, you know, you've messed up creation now. You're running things the way that you would have them run, not how I would. You want to be God's? Okay, then we'll let you run this world. And the first thing is, is that it's going to hurt. Ladies, when you have birth, give birth to children. I don't know why he picked that one, but he did. And it does, I, I hear. Um... And then he says this, not only will childbirth hurt, but relationships will hurt. And you'll notice that both these curses have to do with family, relationships. And she's, he says, you will desire for your husband, but he will rule over you. See, up to this point, Adam and Eve had perfect peace in their home, didn't they? Relationship was easy. But at this point, it says, you're going to have to work if you want to have a good relationship. It's going to be hard. You're, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have a decent relationship. And even sometimes you're going to work hard and you're not going to have a good relationship. 
And that's what happens. And we see that true all throughout the world. And there is no marriage that exists that doesn't exist by having lots of hard work put into it, right? No relationship is without discomfort. And then he turns to the man and he says, you cursed this creation, so now this creation is cursed because of you. You brought death into it. And so it's just going to fall apart just like you're going to fall apart. And you were made of dirt, so to dirt you're going to return. Now he's not just dirt, right? We're also spirit, so that's a good thing. But we have death. But not only that, he says, you know what? You want to run this world? You want to run it? I gave you a garden that was easy to tend. Super easy. Easiest job, very fulfilling. Now work is going to be hard. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to work really, really hard. And, and you're going to eke out a living now. And haven't we found that to be the case, that life is now difficult? That any person that's successful has to be successful by a lot of hard work? It takes a lot of effort to eat and survive? Well, just as it was with the woman, we have to work in the home, we have to work outside the home as well to make sure that we can, we can live. And then he says, now that death will begin. Now, he, he removes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He says, now that they have eaten this fruit, now they can have their own morals. It's not right for them to live forever. And that might sound mean or like God's threatened by us, but that could be so laughable. God's not threatened by us. Think about how awful it would be if God allowed us to have access to the tree of life. Okay? Uh, if we were sinful people, and you have to have the tree of life to live forever, apparently, part of our design. So, uh, in our sinful state, if the tree of life still exists and we had access to it, who do you think would have access to it? It would be some big corporation or a king, right? Wouldn't we use the tree of life to manipulate other people? And those very strong, powerful people then would never be able to die? Can you imagine how horrible this world would be? Out of God's mercy, he said, you can't have access to this. You, in his great love... He allowed us to continue to, to try to run this world the way we we're going to, but he said, no, I, I, will, I will limit your suffering. And he limited our access to the tree of life and one of the greatest, most merciful acts of God. And so we were cast out of the garden, but he didn't just cast Adam and Eve out. Notice what he does in, in verse 20. He says, God made clothes for them. Animal hide. He shows us a principle that sin results in death, but it also that God covers us. Now, the leaves that Adam and Eve were using were kind of probably you know, not very good. And so God makes them something more durable, shows care and compassion, even in our brokenness. Even though God didn't say directly to them it was wrong for them to be naked, God said, I'm going to help cover you. I'm going to help remove shame. I'm going to also show you the cost of sin. And he sets up the very first thing we see that there is, uh, that there is this life-death <laughs> thing. Sin causes pain and it results in death, but also that God covers us. So what are some takeaways that we find? This is an interesting story. Well, here's some good things that we find. And the first one is that God is creator. We live in a world that wants to say that the universe can be, dis, uh, can be explained by natural things only. And yet we see that's impossible. Uh, and so we find that God is actually creator. We know that as a creator, he's got to have certain qualities. He's got to be intelligent enough to create the things that he's created, and he's got to be powerful enough to create the things he's created. Because you can't make something you're not smart enough or powerful enough to make, correct? And so we look at the, the design of nature, 
And it's amazing. We, we can't even fully map, uh, you know, all the little things in our... We're starting to map our own genomes, which has took, took a long time, like decades. God just made it just out of the ground. Talk how smart that is, but we can't develop new things. Uh, think about how the universe operates and how the, the stars and the, the, uh, the moon are giving us the tidal system and things. God is brilliant. It's way smarter than any human, way smarter than humanity as a whole, even after thousands of years of combined knowledge. He's brilliant. Not only is he brilliant, but he's also really powerful. We can make skyscrapers and we're proud of it. God made planets by speaking. He's a powerful God. He is creator, and we should not forget that, whom we are dealing with. And if we ever think as humans that we are ever going to outsmart or outpower God, it's a good idea to look at creation and say, hmm, maybe, maybe not. Next thing we see is that, is that humans are both nature and spirit. It is right for us to be a part of this world. God doesn't call us to be so darn spiritual that we're not actively part of this creation. We're called to care for it. We're tied to this creation. We are. Granted, we'll get die and we'll be part of the next creation. But while we're here, we're part of this creation. It's okay. But we're not just part of this creation. We're not only nature. And for those who don't understand that we also have spirit, we live an unbalanced life. We need to feed both in the right way so that we can be healthy and whole. The next thing it says, it shows us, is that gender and equality are by God's design. And we live in a culture right now, a world that wants to deny that gender even exists. But it says in the beginning, God created them male and female. He created them. It's okay. Masculinity adds a, a reflection of God that femininity doesn't. And femininity adds a reflection of God that masculinity doesn't. They're different, but they were not made in competition. They were made to complement one another. But they were made in equality, weren't they? Adam and Eve have made of the very same stuff, same breath, no difference, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, equal, equal, but different. God's design. But that goes not just for men and women, it goes for all races, doesn't it as well? All people, there aren't really races, there are kinds. God made everything according to its kind, and there is humankind. And so people are people. And all people equally made in the image of God, whether they're man or woman or anything else. God also says that marriage is part. I threw this in there because it's a hot topic now. We want to get rid of gender. We want to change what marriage is. And people oftentimes come to my office and say, Aaron, will you marry me? I can't marry anybody. God marries people. I can do a cere- I can officiate a ceremony. I can do that. But God is the one who joins people, right? Aaron does not have like superhuman glue. Like, there you go. God can do that. That's what it says. God, uh, therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother, and God joins them together. That's an amazing thing. And so God said how God is going to join people. There are parameters that God said. This is what I will do to join people. And he says there will be a man and a woman. A man has to leave his father and mother and he will be united to his wife. And so marriage is. It's a man and a woman. And it seems to be one man and one woman. That's the way that God designed it. And it's a bonding, a life thing. And so we can try to put any two things together we want to, but we can't force God to join what God will not join, and we cannot cause God to separate what he's not going to separate. So that marriage is originally from God, part of our design. Now some takeaways from the fall. Uh, Here's the thing. We have an enemy. Realize the devil is real. We don't have to be afraid of him, but we have to respect him. Okay, he's smart. He, He played us like a fiddle. But he's less powerful than God, and we have the Holy Spirit with us. But we have to recognize the enemy is out there, so we don't want to play with him. He does have power. 
And uh, we need to recognize it. The next thing we see is that sin results in suffering and death. And we all nod our heads at church to that. But let me tell you what. A lot of times when our morality differs from God's, we choose our own morality and then we wonder why our lives fall apart. I can't tell you how many people come to my office and say, I want to get married and they're already living together. And they say, well, it just makes more sense. You know, if we live together first, then we'll know if we're compatible. And then they wonder why they have marriage problems later on. Or you have people that want, they say, you know what, I want to, to, to be financially secure. And so they choose not to be generous. And they take their things and they, they spend their money, invest their money the way that makes most sense to them and they've got lots of good reasons for it. And then they wonder why their money owns them and they end up having all kinds of problems. You know what? Sin results in suffering and death. It's not our job as pastors to make you feel happy. We love you too much. And as my brothers and sisters, it's not your job to make me feel happy. If we have sin in our lives, it's going to be killing us. It will bring suffering and pain into my life if I'm sinning. There is no other way around it. And there will be suffering and pain in your life if you're sinning. It's not God being mean. It's not about him trying to show you shame and saying he didn't design the world to work that way. And we can't get mad at God when we do things different than the way he designed them to be and then wonder why our lives fall apart. It's not his fault. Sin results in suffering and death. That's just a natural law. And we have to hear that. Another thing that we see here is that our own morality is our downfall. We disagree with God on a lot of things. Adam and Eve disagreed with God on some things. And we will think we're all right. But what is our morality in this world? What has it resulted in? Well, all kinds of bad things, right? When I feel moral and morally superior to you, do I help you and love you like God helps and loves me? No, I feel morally superior to you. Have you ever hated somebody in the name of religion? Think how ridiculous that is. We oftentimes use our morality as a bat to bloody the people we disagree with, to pound them into submission to our will as though we were God. Morality is our downfall. We need to turn to God's morality. When I disagree with God, we have to recognize that God is always right. And God's morality won't always match mine. That's the problem of the fall. That's why we call Jesus Lord. And I think something else we find is that God has never abandoned us. No matter how much that we have pushed him away, no matter how wrong we have been, God has not only met our every need, he has mercifully come to our aid every time. God is not a God that walks away. God is a God that provides and asks us to come. And ultimately, he's provided our biggest need in Christ. And he says, come by faith. And your sins will be forgiven and you'll be adopted into his family. And he'll give us a new body and a new heaven, a new earth, a a world that we're not going to mess up. We're not going to try to take over that one. God will be God. So what's the moral of the story? Well, if I was reading just and I could only grab one thing, from Genesis, the very beginning, Adam and Eve, get this. Only God can be God. People don't make good gods. We make lousy gods. But God makes a really great God. So let's let him be God. Look what we've done to our creation. Are we good creators? No, we've pretty much destroyed. If we continue living the way we're doing, people won't be able to live on this earth. Our power is often used for selfish gains, isn't it? We abuse our power. In fact, we have that saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We even know people can't be trusted with power. That's why we have the government system that we have. Divides the power up. 
right? But God can be trusted with power. And our morals, the way we have morals, result in pride and arguments and war and death, but God's morals result in life. See, God is creator. God is powerful. God is the one who is truly moral. And God is the only one who can be savior. And we have an amazing God who's never abandoned us. So what do you do with this? I know it's not like your most evangelical message of all from Scripture, but it's a powerful one. It's beginning. If you have your, your connection card, uh, if you take that out, there are some things that we can do, however, to begin putting this application into our life. And first one is this. We want to memorize Genesis 1.1. Why? Because if you ever start feeling like, you know, the world should operate the way that you want it to operate, this is a great thing to memorize. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not you. So it's going to run by his rules. And he's got good rules. In the beginning, God created. He's, he's not abandoned. This is, everything is by purpose and design. Maybe that's what we need to start with, who he is. Or maybe this week you say, you know what, I would like to read this story myself. Thank you very much. Please do. It's uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In fact, you can just keep on reading in Genesis if you want to. It's an amazing story. Or how about this? Maybe you need to pray for forgiveness. Maybe you have eaten your own fruit, right? Maybe you have... I've done things that God said I want you to do. You know, God is amazing. He's not up there just to whack you. He wants to help us. So if we pray for forgiveness, it says in Scripture, He is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Praise our Heavenly Father. Or maybe what you commit to this week is choose God's morals. Maybe there's something in Scripture you read and it's a moral that disagrees with what you think should be right and wrong. Well, this is your opportunity to bend the knee to him and say, you know what, you're Lord. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to trust you know better than me. So maybe that's what you commit to this week. And that's not going to be like a one-time thing. That's saying, God, I'm going to follow you even when I don't agree. That's true obedience. That's a powerful thing. Maybe you commit to that this week. Or maybe you just have a prayer request. You know, write it down if you have something you want us to pray for this week. We love to pray for you, care for you. Please let me know what your commitments are. And you can also mark those down on your bulletin you can take home. In just a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we do, please take those connection cards. Drop them in the offering basket as they pass. We sure appreciate it. Before we do that, however, let's, uh, let's pray for our offering. Please join me. Heavenly Father, you are a good and a powerful and a loving and a compassionate God. Thank you for making us. Thank you for not abandoning us. Father, we, we come to you knowing that we are poisoned and broke from this fruit, but we, we trust you. We call you Lord, and we believe that you actually know what is best. So help us live that way. Thank you for your mercy and your grace, and we don't. And Father, I pray as a congregation that you'd help us to be a faithful congregation, to love the people around us in a way that represents you well. And Father, we pray for these commitments that are being made. I pray that this would not just be something that we, we do on Sunday out of emotion, but Father, you give us the tenacity and the, and the discipline to be able to practice these things, to apply them in our lives and to go away changed that you'd receive glory. And Father, we thank you for these tithes and these offerings we're about to collect as well, Lord. May you use them to build your kingdom for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.